Well, folks, it will come as no surprise to you that our country is a place that is very concerned with the idea of freedom. We hear it in every press conference. We hear it at every, in every news show, at every public rally. We want freedom. Freedom from tyranny and oppression. Freedom from mandates, restrictions, and censoring. So often we hear bandied about in our culture slogans like, don't tread on me, or my body, my choice. And the sad truth is, as a people that are obsessed with the idea of freedom, I really don't think we understand it all that well. We think freedom means just the absence of restrictions. We think freedom means doing whatever we want, whenever we want, and having nobody to tell us otherwise. But freedom for the Christian, true, real, biblical freedom, is not just the lack of boundaries, but it's the freedom and the ability to do what is good and right. See, let me say that again. True, real, biblical freedom is not just a lack of restrictions, a lack of boundaries. It is the ability to do what is good and right. That's what the Christian believes freedom is. Look at the beginning of the Scriptures. We go to the Garden of Eden when God gave man and woman a whole world to cultivate, to have gentle and loving dominion over. And yet, in that freedom, freedom to do as they wish, He set boundaries. Do not do this thing that's displeasing to the Lord. Don't follow after this way. Do not partake in this evil. And yet Adam and Eve together said, nobody tells me what to do. We'll be our own gods. And subsequently, all of human history has been defined by their quest for this kind of a false freedom that plunges the whole world and even universe into chaos and disorder. Saying, I want it my way, no matter what the cost is, is not freedom. It's slavery to sin and death. And that's what our passage is really concerned with today. It's freedom. Now, just having heard what we heard, it doesn't sound like us that has, this has anything to do with freedom. It sounds like to us, we just read a list of rules and regulations and so we're not used to thinking about this. When we think about freedom, again, we think about the, the, the reality of, or, or, or rather, just being able to do whatever we want. Consequences be gone. Whatever we want, whatever we feel like, that's how we think of freedom. But isn't it interesting that the way Paul talks about the Christian doing, uh, to, to live freely in Jesus looks like loving and serving other people. I think we need to orient our understanding of freedom, not only as a freedom from the guilt of sin, from the power of death, but a freedom to do good, to lovingly, obediently, willingly serve both Christ and others. That is how we should define freedom. Now, the last few weeks we've seen what it means to be a newly created human being in and with Jesus. See, that's what we think. Jesus is such, uh, he is such a game changer 
to the human story. See, we were lost and dead and selfish in our sins. All we could do is kill and maim and enslave one another. That's what the human race could conjure up in their freedom. But Jesus came loving and serving, laying down his life sacrificially for sinners so that we could be newly human like he is human. He gave us a different way of being. We're no longer enslaved to our lower desires, our basest instincts. We're free like he is to love and serve people even when they mock and hurt and belittle us just like they did to him. Jesus has freed us from the bondage of evil and freed us for the purpose of doing good in his name and for his glory. So practically speaking, what does that look like? And that's what Paul gets at this morning. What does it mean to be newly human? What does it mean to be free in Christ? We start here in verse 18. In our passage today, the apostle shows us that our freedom, the freedoms that he talked about a few weeks ago, freedom from the disordered desires of of lust, freedom from the sinful and slanderous speech that we're so used to, that's not the end of the Christian life. See, we want to talk about, oh, well, we're free from these things. But then we stay in stasis? Is that what is God has freed us from? Just so we're freed us from our problems so we can do whatever we want? No, He's freed us in order to do something good. We're a new people, newly human, and we are truly free in that sense for the sake of God and one another. So realistically speaking, how do we go about doing this? Well, Paul is practical here. He says, you know, if we really aren't a new creation in Christ, if God has made us into new human beings, where do we see that worked out first in the world? It starts where we live, in our own homes. Paul's assumption here is that these are the three sets of relationships that will be the most common relationships that the human person has. He lists three things here. First, husbands and wives, so spouses. Two, parents and children. And three, masters and servants. So I don't, everybody here I know of is either married or has kids or is a child, has a job. All of these things are, 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 are uh, common to our human experience. And they begin right in the home, and that's where Paul begins this morning. So in verses 18 and 19, he starts where God started in Eden with a husband and wife. Now, let's think about this. In Paul's day, it was fairly common for scholars and statesmen and whoever to tell wives, you must submit to your husband's no matter what. And it was just as common in Paul's day for the, those same scholars and statesmen to say nothing to the husbands about how they should treat their wives. In other words, he boss, you boss the wife around and husbands, you get to do whatever you want. That's what is the that's what the legalist and the pagans are doing in Paul's day. But that's not what Paul does here. He does something radically different. See, he addresses because we are all newly human in Jesus. Black, white, male, female, old, young, whatever, he addresses everybody. So he addresses both the woman and the man showing that they are equally human and of equal dignity in Jesus Christ. 
We want to know where the idea of human rights came from, the equality and dignity of all people. You start with Jesus Christ who gave us that idea. That's not a, that's not a secular development. That didn't just come out of uh, uh, the universities and, 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 the, and the latent liberalism of early modern Europe. That's not uh, something that comes out of the natural human heart. The desire to look at people as equals comes to us from Jesus. While the pagans and legalists suggest that wives are lesser than their husbands, Paul says absolutely not. That's not the case. They both bear equally important responsibilities to one another. So Paul says a word to wives. He says, wives, respect and follow your husbands, but also, and with equal clarity, he says, husbands, really love your wife and don't be bitter with her. In other words, do good for her. Do love in the sense of living self-sacrificially. Don't hold on to grudges. Now, folks, I, I, I know that there's probably not a spouse in this building right now that doesn't feel kind of resistance to this. It's easy to put caveats, but you don't understand my situation. Or she's a real grouch, or he's, a, he's mean. Let's just set that aside for a second. That, that's probably true, but let's just put a pin in that. Because I want you to consider this. The model for us being like this is Jesus. See, Jesus served sinners. He was born for sinners, ministered to sinners, suffered for sinners, crucified for sinners, and rose for sinners. The Son of God who spoke everything into creation came to live and die and rise, not for heroes, not for the great and mighty, not for the rich and powerful, He came to do that for sinners. And when sinners, like us, believe in Him, they enter into His life and His way of being. We are now so bound up in the life of Jesus that we start to act like Jesus as imperfectly as we do it. So husbands and wives, you will suffer as you love your spouse. You will have to die and to yourself and deny yourself to love them accordingly. Wives, you will have to honor your husbands when that's hard. Husbands, you will have to sacrifice for your wives when that's hard. It's not easy, but it will be good. Because in doing this and living out this way, you're not making a statement. It, this is not a, a gendered statement. This is, 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 is not some sort of uh, political statement, it's not a social statement. What you are doing is living into the life of Jesus for sinners in this world. See, Jesus suffers with and for you. And now that your life is hidden in His, you suffer with and for other sinners as well. Look at your loving and serving an imperfect person as doing what Jesus does for them and for you. You use your freedom in Christ to bless imperfect people, just like He does. And it starts with your spouse. In Jesus, you are free from thinking that marriage is all about what you get out of it. 
we've really uh, uh, absorbed the things that we've seen on TV and movies and read in books where it's all about chemistry. It's all about connection. It's all about compatibility. Those things are fine, but what keeps us together in our marriages is not that it's a, 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 a flaming hot romance all the time, but that we love and give towards one another because that's how Jesus Christ loves and gives Himself for us. That is the reality that our marriages are supposed to reflect. We love other human beings self-sacrificially with all of our heart because that's how Jesus loves us. Husbands, do not be harsh or unsympathetic or lazy about your wife. Love and uplift her as Christ loves and uplifts you. She's not perfect, and she knows that, and you don't have to remind her of it. Simply follow Jesus as he laid down his life for disappointing and imperfect people. And wives, don't complain about or resist or belittle your husbands. Love and respect him as Christ loves and respects you. He's not perfect, and he knows that, and you don't have to remind him of that either. Simply follow Jesus as He gave His life to serve ungrateful people. See, folks, Jesus is the model for how we treat one another. This has nothing to do with any sort of agenda. This is not a culture war. This is how we follow Jesus. This is what it means to be newly human. And I truly believe that if Christians are obedient to this, in their Christian freedom and liberty, choose to suffer with one another for the name of Jesus. Although life will be difficult, it will be fulfilling. God will be glorified and people will be uplifted. Because we'll be living the way Jesus, who is our Creator and our Redeemer and our King, how He even lives for us. Paul continues on to this next relationship. Number two, parents and children. Again, the pagans and the legalists looked at children as people that were just You had kids to turn them into functional slaves until they could get married. You just had a bunch, and then that's your farmhand right there. They don't have any rights or dignity or value. You know, maybe you have some affection for them, but if one of them dies, you bury that one and have another one. I mean, it is a very low view of children. But Paul, again, just like Jesus did, Uplift children. See, he takes them from the level of sermon, or servants and, and, and just uh, you know, labor for hire. He uplifts them from that and pulls them up to the level of co-heirs with Christ Jesus. See, this is an amazing thing. Children are just as precious in the sight of the Lord as their adult parents that have bank accounts and, and fancy jobs. So yes, children, you must obey your parents because that pleases the Lord. But with equal enthusiasm, Paul tells parents, and especially fathers, especially men, do not cause your children to despair. Don't exasperate them. Don't irritate them. Children, listen to your parents. Consider them. They're not always perfect. They're not always right about everything. But Try to obey them as Jesus was himself obedient. But at the same time, parents, don't exasperate or, or manipulate or, or bring your children in to adjudicate in your, 
your, your marriages and stuff, don't do that to them. Also, treat them the way you would want to be treated as a person. Now, as I, as I look out at this congregation, I realize that not many of you have kids at home. Some, some of you do. But there's plenty of grandparents in the room. So I want to give the grandparents an opportunity here to apply this to their life. Now, I know some of you probably look back, probably all of you look back on your parenting years and wish you could have done things a little bit differently. Wish you would have thought of this a little bit differently. Perhaps now, though, you can encourage your children who are raising children that you can, you can encourage them to be what you wished you were in those days. A little more patient, a little more understanding, a little more affirming. And you can encourage your kids now by showing them that you've, you don't have it all together, but you too grow and mature in Christ. And you can encourage them to do the same. They're, just like you, your children are not going to be perfect parents either, but you have the opportunity to be obedient to the Lord even now by not provoking or exasperating your adult children either. You have plenty of chances to uplift them in prayer and encourage them in an exceedingly discouraging world. I know our poor parents need a lot of prayer right now, sending their kids into these schools with all the problems that, uh, that are happening in our society, all the problems that are happening in schools. There's all sorts of uh, things that are unfunded that need more help. There's kids can get violent with each other. And now with dealing with the pandemic, parents are probably more stressed out about school than their kids are. We can be very encouraging even to our uh, children as they seek to raise their own children. So something to think about for the grandparents. Now finally, Paul gets to this last relationship here in verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now Paul addresses servants and masters. Slaves and masters. Is the, is the original word. Now, wonderfully, in the course of time, Christian people, many Christian people, Gregory of, of Nyssa, Bartolome de la Casas, William Wilberforce, Harriet Beecher Sowe, Sojourner Truth, just to name a few, ultimately saw that the trajectory of, of the Gospel means that we are all equal. That nobody, based on their race or economic status, um, it should ultimately be in bonds. Christ came to liberate us from all of that stuff. So we sing it during Christmas time. Um, the, you know, the, this was written years ago. The slave is our brother. The person that's on a lower social socioeconomic status is equal to us. See, that's, Paul deals with this all over the New Testament. Hey, you rich, James does too. You rich folks, don't get to church early and eat all the good food and, and when the, the poor people can get off their shift, you throw them the bones. No! You wait for them. You eat with them like they're your equals. See, that's the trajectory that the Christian Gospel goes. But Paul inherits a world where it'd be like getting, getting rid of slavery in the first century would be like saying, oh, well, let's... Uh, Let's just get rid of cars overnight. You know, we use cars to drive around everywhere. And so they say it's bad for the environment, all these things. But just going cold turkey on it is not viable, really. Paul realizes he's in this world 
where Christians are so few in number, have so little social influence, that he says just as best you can within the systems that you have been handed, the imperfect, flawed, sinful systems, live as Christ would want you to live. So, I think what we can learn from this, not only that ultimately we can rejoice that over the course of Christian history, we saw that slavery in all its forms was outlawed universally. took way too long in human history for that to happen. But we can also think, God puts us in worlds, in in a world, in a country, where there are all sorts of things that happen in our world that is just unjust. The way, the way the government spends tax dollars, uh, just, the, just the way our culture works, the relationships. We just, this is just the world that we're in. It's not perfect, but we have to live in it. I think this is a good reminder to us that although we do have to live in this world as is, we can always be thinking about how would Jesus ultimately like to see this world be? What will the kingdom look like one day? I think that was what drove men like William Wilberforce, who was a British man in the 1700s, who was a devout Christian and was reading the New Testament, convinced and convicted, we can't keep doing this slavery thing. We just can't keep doing it. And, and, and he was almost a one-man army, continually lobbing parliament. We've got to get away with this. Te- We've got to abolish this terrible practice. See, he could have used the Bible and said, well, it's there. Slavery is talked about, so let's just not deal with it. But he saw that ultimately, Christ would have all people free, Jew or Greek, barbarian or Scythian or civilized or Roman, he would have them all sitting at his table with nobody putting their foot down on anybody else's head. So he used that creatively to, to, to get away with a terrible institution. I think this is an opportunity for us to think in our own lives. How could we approach these things that are problematic and complicated and not ultimately what the Lord would want and think, how can we engage Christianly with these things. The Lord gives us a tremendous amount of freedom to glorify His name, to preach His gospel, and live in ways that are alternative ways to the way in which the world would live. That is a rabbit trail. But another principle we can apply from Paul's wisdom here is although we live in a different world in some sense, there's always going to be people that are in charge, that are the overseers, and then there's going to be the people that are doing the labor and the the manual work and the employees. So there's going to be the CEO and the the number cruncher. That's just the way things are always going to work in our world. But what Paul makes clear is that the master in the first century world is not greater than his servant. They're equal. In our own day, do not let anybody tell you that the CEO is more of more worth value than the janitor is. That may be the world, how the world looks at people. That's not how Jesus looks at people. See, they both are sinners that need to come to His table, and they're both invited to it. There's no difference. It doesn't matter if one has $1.3 million or one has $13 in the bank. They're equal in the eyes of the Lord. See, we like to, oh, this person has more money, so we're going to listen to what they do. That's not how the New Testament deals with people. 
If you don't believe me, read the book of James. See how James deals with these bigwig CEO Christians that come in and and brush the poor out of the way so they can sit in the nicest row and, and be served first at the banquet. Weep and howl, you rich, for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's how the Bible deals with people that use their social status to put other people down. We're not about that. We're all about us being equal here because that's what we are in Jesus. So what does Paul tell us? Now I look at this crowd, we're a pretty blue-collar church. So what, how do we, as primarily people that have been employees our whole life, none of us are CEOs that I know of, um, how, do, how do we live? Well, here's the, here's the tough pill to swallow. Paul tells us that we're to be good servants and workers, not just doing it with our hands, but also with a right heart. And that's tough. That is tough in this day and age. We're not to be just people pleasers, only do it what's right when people are looking, but to do this work with an honest and sincere effort because that honors God. And that reflects who He is through our work. Now ultimately, none of us are serving human beings. And all the things we do and all our work and worship, we're giving glory ultimately to God. How we live this life reflects what we really believe and how we really worship Jesus. Now here's a sad fact. I want to acknowledge this too. In our sick and dying world, as Christians, the reality is we are going to be taken advantage of, especially in our labor. That is just so fundamental to our society. People will steal credit for our hard work, They'll blame their mistakes on us when we had nothing to do with it. And and plenty of us will go unthanked for the good job we do. We'll go underpaid for the the above and beyond effort that we put in. People are facing that big time. But Paul reminds us that all our earthly endeavors are ultimately about serving Jesus, who again sets the model for how we serve. Paul says he he left behind all his riches, all the glories of eternity. He became poor for us so that we might be rich in him. See, that's ultimately what our hearts are set on. Not the wealth of this world that a thief can break in and steal, that moth and rust will ultimately destroy. We work for the sake of Jesus who works for our sake. He he didn't have to lower Himself. He sure did not have to be crucified for a bunch of Baptist ingrates. But He did that lovingly. And in turn, as we grow closer to Jesus, we can even suffer the injustices that happen in our workplaces. Now, I want to say this too. This is both a word of warning for us who might be tempted to take advantage of others, whether it's spouses or family or other workers, but it's also a word of comfort to those who often get taken advantage of. Because in these verses, Paul says that our service, although it might be going unnoticed by everyone else, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
see and know our pain, our sorrow, our discouragement, our labor, God will never forget about us in that. In fact, he goes on to say that God sees the, how people are mistreated. He sees how you're taken advantage of. He sees how you take advantage of, and God deals with that, really. And in some way, we just have to trust that God will do that in the right time. That he'll see that we're trying to be a faithful spouse to somebody that is just so stubborn and selfish. He'll see that we're trying to be a, a, a patient with our children who are insane or, or, or loving towards our parents that feel like they're draining all the life out of us. He'll see that we're trying to be good workers for a, a boss that is just a corrupt, greasy fool. The Lord will not let those things go unnoticed. It's not easy, though, to serve people in this way. And folks, believe it or not, in our next passage, it's about to get even harder. So is it any wonder then, when Paul, in the middle of talking about all this stuff, breaks out into a request, reminding all of us, husband or wife, parents or children, employer or employee, to pray that God can do this through us. We can't do it ourselves. The the list of tasks that we've been given right here is impossible for us to accomplish. We have to pray that God might work through us in doing this. And here's the amazing thing. God does work through people like us to do these wonderful things in this world. And it's why I don't think any Christian should ever feel insignificant or spiritually unqualified or even that they may feel inconsistent in their Christian life. You're still called to pray because God in His wisdom has chosen to work through the means of, of sinners that come to Him in prayer as a way of blessing the world. Let's look at these next few verses, starting in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 2. Paul is encouraging us to take advantage of our free status, of our new humanity in Jesus. Become a people of prayer. And first of all, Paul says, we must ourselves pray. We must pray for ourselves. In fact, he sounds remarkably like Jesus here. In verse 2, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Our duty then is not only these things that we've talked about, but in order to, to fuel those things with power, we have to pray. First, he tells us we must be alert. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be alert in prayer? Well, Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 14 um, that they must be alert. And, and Paul tells us that we must be alert for the same reason, that we don't fall into temptation, that we don't get distracted um, by the things in this world. A large part of our need to pray is that so we don't give in to the pressures of, what it, of our society, of our culture. We don't succumb to our old desires that we don't become the people that mistreat our spouses or children or employees. We must be alert of sin that's creeping out there. And secondly, we're to pray with thanksgiving, with gratitude. 
In other words, we're, again, we're, it's about freedom. We're not just praying to be free from sin, to have that restriction removed from us, but we're praying to be freed, uh, uh, free to love and to give thanksgiving for what God has done in our lives. So we must pray for ourselves. But in verses 3 and 4, we also must pray for others. See, Paul considered himself and his missionary companions to... Uh, uh, wherever they may be, now Paul's in prison chains, he considered them to be dependent on the prayers of the Colossians. Now this is striking because Paul is the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sat at the feet of Jesus and learned all that he's learned. But yet Paul is saying to this small congregation in the backwoods of, of Asia Minor, Colossians that is just a, it's a road stop on the way to Ephesus. He is dependent on these handful of blue-collar Christians to pray that God would work even through him. That's pretty incredible, I think, that Paul tells Christians like us, your prayer to God for others matters. The success of Christian missionaries and, and ministers and evangelists and, and, and lay people out in the world is tied up with the prayers of the faithful. Folks, we should be a people of prayer. Paul says that if they would pray, then he could reveal eternal mysteries of Christ to others. That's a high responsibility. Folks, when you come to church and when you pray with your congregation. You are doing something, you don't even realize how powerful it is. You are walking into the throne room of God Almighty, who spun more galaxies into existence than we can count. There are more galaxies than there are grains of sand. Galaxies. That's not even to get into solar systems or stars. It's unbelievable. You're walking into that throne room and being filled up with all of God's beaming glory, all of its wonder and mystery and power, and you are pouring that out on a world that desperately needs it. That's what prayer is. That's what happens when you pray. So I, I, I want to know why do we give so little attention to prayer? Why do we neglect to meet together midweek to pray for those who are hurting? Why do we not stop in the evening to pray uh, for those in our lives? Well, why, why don't we uh, wake up in the morning and, and even pray that God would do something through us? We wonder why nothing's happening in our world, why, why our churches are, are suffering, why people aren't coming to faith. And then I think, well, are we even praying about those things? Folks, prayer is not an option in our lives. If you don't feel like you have time to pray, then you have to make time. It's not an option. If you feel like it's inconvenience to your schedule, your schedule needs to change, not your prayer life. The Christian life without prayer is not much of a li Christian life at all. A Christian who doesn't pray is, I don't think, a real Christian. 
The great preacher D.L. Moody once said, if you have so much business to attend to that you know, have no time to pray, depend upon it, you have more business on your hand than God ever intended you should have. If you have more stuff to do and you, prayer doesn't fit into it, that's too much to do. I don't care if it seems like it's important stuff. It's not as important as prayer. Of, of spending time with the Lord. Of, of drawing your heart towards, or re- having your heart drawn towards Jesus. It's why Paul connects prayer for both ourselves and for each other to the rest of the Christian life. In verses 5 and 6, he follows his admonition to pray with the insistence that Christians live, um, that, it, rather, that Christians live as if they prayed. So how is that? They pray and live to act wisely towards non-Christians. To make the best use of our time here on, off, on earth and above all, to speak graciously and truthfully and faithfully to whoever we might encounter. Christians must not walk through life according to our own knowledge, our own power, our own wisdom, but in God's wisdom and God's knowledge and God's power. See, us trying to say, I can cut it, I don't need to pray or come to church or be, read my Bible or do anything that seems remotely Christian, how is that working out for you, by the way? Is your life going swimmingly without it? I doubt it. How often do I see Christians just make fools of themselves? Can't make it to service. Can't spend time in the Bible. Can't pray with their church on a weekly basis. But can go online all day and argue with people get upset about things, get distressed. Christians will complain that nobody gives them the royal treatment in this nation anymore. And they won't even show up to serve their own congregation. What kind of foolishness is that? God calls us to be a servant. That's what God... Jesus calls us to be servants. He didn't tell, go out there and be masters of the world. He says, that's what the unbelievers do. You want to be great in my kingdom? You serve everybody. He calls us to be salt in our community. Salt enriches the the, the life of something. The flavor of something. Salt preserves it from decay. It's a great metaphor. We are to enrich the lives of others. We are to preserve from decay. Not to accelerate it. We love to accelerate stuff as Christians. We love to pick fights, to look down. Oh, they don't believe like this. They don't go to this church. They vote this way. So I'm going to get nasty with them. Is it any wonder our churches are emptying out? If the world looks around and says, well, if Christianity is just a political club or a social gathering where you, have, you sing these old songs that are mean to people, who would want to be a part of that? And I agree with them. If that's what it is, We ought to empty out the pews. Folks, do not so struggle for your rights and your freedoms as an American that you leave behind an ugly testimony as a Christian. 
Your citizenship is to heaven first, the kingdom of God first, and then the United States of America. I I can't believe I have to even say that in this day and age. I get shot in some Baptist churches saying that. It's not wise, it's not attractive, it's not speaking anything of Jesus when we're always about us being served, us being appreciated, us being respected, and never about serving the undeserving and ungrateful even. Every believer in your life, every unbeliever rather, should think that you're the kind of person who although you're flawed and have your own problems and are not perfect, are still so kind and gracious and compassionate, not only in your speech, but also in your actions, that they can't help but wonder, who is this Jesus that they worship? That would be a great testimony. I would love to know that people came to this church because they interacted with one of you and said, this person was so good to me in a world that's so harsh that I can't help but see what motivates them to be that way. Folks, we've talked a lot this morning about ways in which we are free from certain things. But we've also talked about how we're free now for other things. We're free from sin and death, and we're free unto Jesus and one another. So that means that we serve others. So it means we obey and respect those that are in positions of authority. We restrain from hurting people. But the reality is, I don't know about you, reading this, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, I don't, I'm not even sure if I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't live like this at all. I get convicted about that. The reality is, we'll fail at so many of these things that we wish we could live up to. So many of our spiritual aspirations will fall short of really living like or loving like Jesus. It's not possible without grace. And it is not possible if Jesus Christ is not king over your life. Start with Jesus. If you feel discouraged about you're not this way, start with Jesus. I promise you, that's where everything begins and ultimately circles back around to. Don't start with the preacher. Don't start with... Being a Baptist, don't start with being a a Christian or whatever identifier. Start with your relationship with Jesus. And folks, we're all going to fail. We're all going to just humiliate ourselves. But we're coming to this Lord's Supper table today, not because we're particularly good or smart or winsome or obedient to Jesus, but because he is particularly Perfect at loving and forgiving, even people like us. See, we get to participate in this not because we've lived up to what Paul has told us to live up to, but because Jesus already lived up to it for us. He's always beckoning us to come back to him. No matter how many times we've been prodigals that have run away, we can always come back to him and he'll forgive us. We'll talk about this tonight. I'm giving you a preview of Amos tonight. Do you know how many times in the book of Amos God says, just, just return to me and it's all water under the bridge. 
happens time and time and time again. That's what God's heart is for us. That's what this table is all about. We are not these kind of people, not yet. But everyone who approaches this table in the name of Jesus with faith and repentance can be assured, even in their imperfections, they are totally forgiven. This table is a reminder to us that on the cross, Jesus freed us, not only from the terrors and complications of our world, but he freed us to really be in true fellowship with him and with one another. And in that new human freedom, we are free to both serve one another and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to use our freedom to be good spouses and parents and children and employers and workers and help us to be a people of prayer who are gracious and wise and loving even to people outside of our body of faith. For we do this all in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.